I'm also looking forward to the, the time with you this morning, the word. This is the second of our two parts on Proverbs 5 through 7. So we're walking through the book of Proverbs. It just so happened that here, right these two weeks before Easter, we're in two very uh, difficult but important passages in Proverbs 5 through 7 on the issue of sexual purity and morality. And so I've taken two weeks on this, primarily because the scripture takes three chapters on it, uh, but also because of the need we have for this. We need to be thinking about these things clearly. Uh, we need to be talking about these things, which are so important. And the reason the crowd looks a little sparse this morning is for the last few weeks, we've announced that if, if you didn't think this was appropriate for your children, that they were able to stay in children's ministry. We never do that, uh, but we did that this morning. And so that's why there's so many empty seats. But I really do believe that God wants to, to balance a couple of things this morning. I think he wants us to feel the heaviness and the weight of sin, which is good and right. And I think he wants us to feel uh, the sufficiency of the mercy that is in Christ. And so I'm praying that as we walk through this, the Lord would help us to be able uh, to see that today. One of the things that makes the book of Proverbs so fun is all of the characters. So chapter 1 through 31, there's just all of these really colorful characters. And every one of them are used by the Lord uh, to expose something often in us, to warn us, to reveal itself to us. And so sometimes, instead of just giving a command, it can give a character. And that character paints a picture for us that's more alive than maybe just a command would be. And so, so much in the book of Proverbs is given to us that way, which causes us to think a little bit more. But in chapters 1 through 9, those chapters which are distinct from the rest of the book, those chapters are a conversation between a father and a son. And there's four main characters in those nine chapters. There is this kingly, wise father. He is a father, he is a king, but he has been given wisdom. There is this simple and young and maybe a bit naive son who is entering into adulthood. There is then on the other side, this woman of wisdom and then this wily woman of folly. And the whole context is the father is speaking to the son about the battle for the son's soul. Because even though the father has time with his son at home and they're having these conversations and there is such a model, I get so frustrated when people say, you know, kids don't come with a manual. There's no manual for parenting. Well, there is. And the book of Proverbs is the key to that. But the reality is, is the father knows that his son's going out into the world and he's getting more freedom. And he knows there's a battle for his soul. And the battle is exemplified in these two voices. It seems as if every place that the sun goes and every street he walks down, every moment of the day, there's this competing voices. There's the voice of wisdom and the voice of folly. Both of them are loud. Both of them are crying out and calling out. Both of them are pleading. Both of them are imploring. Both of them are making promises. And the father knows that the son, when he walks out into the world, is going to hear these voices. And so the real feel of Proverbs 1 through 9 is that of, of the weight and the heaviness of the battle for the soul, and yet the love and grace and kindness of a father pleading with his son to choose the way of wisdom for lots of reasons. Not only because the father loves the son and longs for the son to have a life of blessing and a life of reward and a life of the protection of God, but because he knows the consequences of sin. And he knows that only one of these voices leads to life and the other one leads to death. And this is a serious matter, and whereas he knows the son might be naive and think lightly about these things, the father knows how serious these things are. And the truth is, in many ways, those four characters serve as a metaphor for our life. That there is God the Father who loves us and who's created us, and he knows the way life works best for us. At the very foundation of our ability to trust God, we have to know that he loves us, he is for us, and he knows what is best for us. There really is no trusting of the Lord without, without those truths. There is a God that loves you. And he wants what is best for you. And he knows what is best for you. And his way is always best. And his heart is to protect you. And his heart is to lead you into his life and, and blessing. And we'll talk more about that even next week. And then on the other side, though, there is this, this, this voice of the enemy who is our adversary who's wanting to tear us down. And then the voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus who does cry out, like in John chapter 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and, and drink. And so there's this loving father that has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to plead with us. And then the adversary, the enemy, who is also pleading with us. And then there's us, children of God, who the Lord knows 
are hearing these voices every moment of the day. We talked about the voices that we listen to and there are no neutral voices. Every voice that we hear is leading us either into the way of wisdom and the way of folly. It's what is happening here is the father is, is begging his son as God the father is begging us and pleading with us to choose the way that leads to life. And Proverbs 5 through 7 have that exact same pleading field, but specifically in terms of sexual purity. That is the context. And he gives this illustration that sexuality is, is like a fire. Proverbs 6, 27 says it this way. This is the verse we looked at last week. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? And is, is it possible to carry fire and to not be burned? Well, the answer is, obviously, if you carry fire, you're going to be burned. And he paints this picture of sex like a fire. And when it's contained, and when it's exactly where it is supposed to be in the context of marriage, it is something that is created to create delight. But when it is outside of its context, it can create absolute and utter destruction. And that's what he wants the son to understand. And last week, we looked at about half of the verses in chapters 5 through 7 and talked about seeing temptation. And we don't want to be naive. We don't want to be simple-minded. We do want to understand that every moment of the day, these voices are competing for our soul. And they're not just competing for our attention. They're competing for our soul. And if the enemy knows that through the blood of Jesus Christ, he cannot send you to hell, he would just assume make your life a living hell. And one of the ways he would like to do that is through the area of sexual impurity. And so we talked about how do we see temptation for what it is and how do we notice the tactics of the enemy? And if you weren't here last week, that's a very important message because what we're going to talk about this morning is really the other half of that. This morning, I don't want to talk about seeing temptation, but I want to talk about resisting temptation or fighting temptation. Proverbs 5 through 7 give us four ways that we can fight temptation. My prayer this morning is this, this would be practical, it would be helpful I believe that it can be, but I want to encourage you to, to jot these things down. Four ways that we fight temptation, particularly in the area of sexual purity. And I would say that three of these four points are really helpful in fighting any kind of temptation. But the context in Proverbs 5 through 7 is that of, of sexual temptation. Four ways we fight temptation. The first one is this. Hate sin. <laughs> hate sin. I really believe that this is first. We're going to get to Christ and we're going to get to his mercy, but I believe before all of that, there must be in our heart what is often not in our heart, and that is a deep level of hatred for sin and the havoc that it wreaks upon our lives and the lives of those that we love. Proverbs 8.13, a verse that we'll look at more next week, says this, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Now, we already saw in Proverbs chapter 1 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What it means is this, is the only way into wisdom is to go first through the door of fearing the Lord. And the picture there is really the one that Jesus gives at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says there's this narrow road, but you enter it by a small gate. And that's the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs means you have to start by fearing the Lord, meaning you have to come in a right relationship with God. You see him in his holiness and his glory and his splendor. And in response to that, you submit yourself to him, you trust him, and you follow him. That's, that's fearing the Lord. And that's the beginning of wisdom. But it says here in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, that the other side of fearing the Lord is also that you hate what God hates. You hate sin. God hates sin. And we must hate what God hates. We can't be neutral about these things. God not only hates sin... Because he created us for something better. He not only hates sin because it's rebellion against him. He not only hates sin because it is what sent his only son to his gruesome death. He hates sin because he loves you. And he has watched through all of history what sin has done to, to every individual and to every family. And how it has torn us apart and how it, has, how it has moved us away from what we were created to have. And the life that we were created to have with God and life in God's presence. And that life of joy and peace and fullness of blessing. It is Genesis 1 and 2 that shows us the life God has created us for. A life filled with pleasure and the blessing and the favor of God. A life that we will have in eternity but a life completely destroyed through sin. 
And it's only through our relationship with Christ that we begin moment by moment to see the restoration of that life that God has for us. And by God's grace through Christ, we get little glimpses of this throughout our life, little glimpses of the joy and the peace and the satisfaction. But God has seen, listen, what sin has done to your life. And he loves you. And he hates what sin has done to your life. And he died not only to save us from the penalty of sin, he has died to save us from the misery of sin. He has died to save you from all of those consequences of sin. And I I think about when Paul pleads with us throughout all of his epistles to fight sin. One of the ways he does that is by using this image of slavery. And he's saying, listen, if you were delivered from the slavery of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, why would you want to sin and go back into slavery? Like, why would you want to bring yourself back into a place of slavery if Jesus Christ died to deliver you from that? And even Paul's motive is, I love you. And I don't want you to go back into slavery. Why would you do that? Enjoy the freedom, the whole book of Galatians, that is ours because of Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul and and God sees the way in which sin has damaged us and he longs for us to be free from the shame, the disgrace, and the pain, and the misery of it. Proverbs 5-7 through paints a pretty, pretty dramatic picture of the true cost of sin. Write down some verses if you're taking notes. Proverbs 5, 8 through 14. Proverbs 5, 8 through 14. Talking about this wily and adulterous woman, a picture to us of the temptation from the enemy. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you will say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am on the brink, the sexually immoral says, of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. The cost of, of sexual sin. Look, page over at Proverbs six thirty-two and 33. Proverbs six thirty-two and 33. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys, listen to this. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. The heaviness of of sin. Look at chapter seven, verses 21 and following. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels us. A picture of the the tactics of the enemy who persuades and ensures and entices and flatters and promises. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter. This is a picture of us rejecting the voice of God and going towards the voice of folly and sexual sin. At once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way of Sheol going down to the chambers of death. Meaning Satan has every intention and every desire to, to destroy as much of his, your life as he possibly can. And he does it through this seductive call of sin and getting you to think lightly about things which are actually serious, getting you to, to be okay with things that you should absolutely hate. I want you to think about like this with me this morning. Think about the way in which sin may have wreaked havoc on, on someone you love. Think about someone you love who's fallen into sin, maybe sexual sin, maybe addiction, maybe anger that has not been controlled, maybe an attitude that has not been dealt with through the power of the Holy Spirit. Every one of you can think of someone whose life has been destroyed because of sin. And think about how that grieves you and and think about what it has done to them. Now think about this. Think about the way in which that person's sin has affected the lives of so many others. You see, one of the greatest lies of the enemy is that your sin is just your problem. Your sin is not just your problem. Every sin has these rippling effects, particularly sexual sin. 
It will always have an effect on other people. And think about the way that someone's sin, maybe the way in someone's anger, someone's resentment, someone's bitterness, someone's sexual sin has affected the lives of so many other people. Think about the way that it has affected you. And what that's supposed to do in our hearts is we're supposed to see the way in which sin has affected others. We're supposed to see the way in which other people's sin has affected us. We're supposed to see the brokenness of this world all a result of sin. And it should stir up in us an absolute deep disdain and hatred for sin. We should hate sin and everything that it does. We should see the spiritual cost and the emotional cost and the social cost and the psychological cost and the spiritual cost of sin. And how sin affects every single area of our lives. And we should see all of those consequences and absolutely hate it. We should have this deep and holy and righteous hatred for sin. Not to make light of this, but I think about when we were kids and, and our, our parents would say, you can't say you hate anyone. And then our question would be, you know this, well, what about the devil? Well, okay, it's fine to hate the devil. And so then it just felt good to say, I hate the devil, I hate the devil. And it kind of starts as a joke, but the reality is, you should hate the devil. Like, you should absolutely hate the devil. And there should be in the heart of every person who is righteous, and every person who loves God, and every person that is holy, this deep, deep-seated hatred for sin and what it does. When you think about pornography... And the way it exploits men and women and boys and girls, you should hate it. When you think about the murdering of unborn children, you should hate it. When you think about the killing in Nashville that took three little children's lives and the lives of three teachers, you should get angry about those things. There are things that should make you angry. And the enemy loves to get you to be passive and not to be bothered and not to have any sense of holiness of God in your heart. But the reality is violence and injustice and sexual immorality should stir up in you a godly, good, holy, righteous anger. I believe the starting place of fighting sexual temptation is seeing the damage of that sin on your life and the lives of others and absolutely hating it. I believe that's where you start. I believe you start at the very moment when you're tempted and say, I see what that's going to do to me and to everyone else socially, economically, physically, morally, spiritually, psychologically, and you should hate it. You hate sin. The second thing is this. You should not only hate sin, you should, as a result of that, wage war. <laughs> you wage war. 1 Peter 2.11 says we should abstain from fleshly lusts. And, and that context is more than sexual immorality. It is that. But it's, it's greed and covetousness and the love for money. You should abstain from fleshly lusts. Why? Listen, because they're waging war against your soul. Let me just ask you a very simple question. If there is something waging war against your soul, with without question, the enemy is using sexuality to wage war against your soul okay it is a war for your soul if there's something waging war for your soul and you're not engaging in the war are you going to win because there is a war and the enemy is waging war for your soul he wants to take you down he wants to destroy your life he wants to destroy your family he wants to take your marriage and your family a picture of the gospel of jesus christ and utterly destroy it that's why we call it spiritual warfare because it's war and the reality is is there is a war going on for your soul whether you see it or not and our failure to engage in the battle and to wage war just means that we lose. I read an article a few months ago about a family in Pennsylvania that had a pet bear, a black bear. The article talked about how much they loved this bear and how they had adopted this bear. They had the bear for, for nine years and the bear was just a part of the family. And they named the bear Teddy. <laughs> Teddy Bear so dumb they talked about everything about this bear and how the bear just kind of become a part of the family like the bear was was a poodle and then you get to the end of the article and it tells the end of the article the reason the article was there is because the mom from the family went out to do what she does every day she went into teddy's cage and she's cleaning it out and, and and feeding the bear 
and you're not, you are not going to believe what happened. The bear killed the mom. Who would have thought that could ever happen? And it's sad, and you grieve for the family, but you don't have a pet bear. You don't have a pet bear. You don't domesticate a bear. Bears are supposed to kill you. That's what they do. And let me tell you something. That's what we do with sin. We domesticate sin. We take something that exists to kill you and to tear you apart and to destroy your life and destroy the life of everyone that you love and we tolerate it and we act like it's not a big deal and we think that we can cage it. It will destroy you. It will take you down. We cannot domesticate sin. We cannot act like it doesn't matter. No, we must wage war against it. And so there is... In Proverbs 5 through 7, all of this practical application for things that you need to do, fearing it and hating it, and how you wage war against it. Think about chapter 5, verse 8. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Like, just practically, don't get close. Don't put yourself in any context in which there might be sexual temptation it goes on in chapter 6 verse 25 look at that in chapter 6 verse 25 it says it says do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with your eyelashes chapter 7 24 through 27 says this oh now son listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth let not your heart turn aside to her don't let your heart go there don't stray into her path stay away for many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng her house is the way of Sheol going down to the chamber of death what it's saying is that keep your heart keep your mind keep the windows to your soul which we talked about last week your ears your eyes all of your senses your feet keep all of those things as far away as you possibly can there's this practical side to waging war against sexual temptation. And you think about the simple-minded person in Proverbs 7. Remember that? We talked about it last week, but there's this picture in Proverbs 7, verse 6. That someone is looking out the window of their house and they're looking through their lattice. And, and they're seeing among the simple, among the youths, here's a young man and he lacks sense. And by the way, this is a picture of every man and every woman. Temptation of sexual impurity. They're passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight of the evening, in the time of night and darkness. Look at this. Behold, a woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay at home. In the street and in the market, at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with a bold face, she says to him, I had to sacrifice, and today I've paid my vows. I came out to seek you and meet you, and I have found you. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to a slaughter. This is not just about wily women and tempting men. This is about the enemy take, trying to take down every man and woman. And the problem is here, he should not have walked down that street. And when he walked down that street and saw her, he should have ran. But he didn't. He walked down the street. He looked at her. He had a conversation with her. And when he knew her intention, he kept having a conversation with her. And he lingered there for a little bit longer. And he looked a little bit longer. And he talked a little bit more. And he allowed what she said to put an image in her mind. And the next thing she knew, because he had went down the wrong path, because he had talked a little longer, because he had lingered a little longer, he is like an ox led to a slaughter. And he is going to his death as a naive person. It's just practical side that you, you have to run. You have to, you have to deal with, with sin. You don't want to be like an ox led to the slaughter, this naive person. And you think about chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, where it says this. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed in sexual passion. And here, here's what he says at the end of his life. I hated discipline and I despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers. My parents taught me this. My pastor told me this. Everyone said to me, but I didn't listen and I wasn't disciplined. And that's the consequences of sin. And chapter 5 ends that way. This person dies for the lack of, of discipline. And so there is this active, disciplined approach to our sin. We take practical, active, aggressive steps to wage war. Can I just tell you the first one? The first one is to bring your sin to light. That's the first one. 
This stuff grows in the darkness. The two things the enemy wants to do is he wants to get you isolated. Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself, seeks his own desire and goes against all sound wisdom. And he wants to make you passive. Passivity and isolation will destroy you in the areas of sexual temptation. The first thing you do is you bring it to light. This is why you have a church. This is why you have brothers and sisters of Christ. You talk to someone. You bring it to light. That's how you start waging war. So you hate sin. You wage war. The third one is this. And some of you have been looking forward to this one. You enjoy marriage. You enjoy marriage. That's the third truth. Third truth of the way in which we fight sexual temptation. I said last week we view these chapters of Proverbs both practically and metaphorically. The problem with viewing it all as a metaphor is that it is really hard to look at the middle of chapter 5 as just a metaphor. There's some very practical instruction about this. And let me read it for you in chapters 5 verses 15 through 19. Listen to this. In the context of all of this talk about sexual purity, it says this. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing waters from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Can I just say verse 20 is, a, is an incredible verse about the dangers of, of even pornography, getting intoxicated with a forbidden woman. By forbidden woman, it means a woman that is not yours, that does not belong to you. It says, for a man's, eye, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all of his paths. And these iniquities ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. And so he talks about marriage in the context of marriage. And let me just say a couple of things about sexual activity in the context of marriage. The first one is this. Marriage, listen to this, marriage is the only context for sexual passion and expression. I don't know why we're confused about this. I don't know why there's confusion. There seems to be a generation that, that seems to think this is not clear in Scripture. Let me, let, me just, let me just be clear. This is abundantly clear in Scripture. There is one place, there is one context for any sexual passion and any sexual expression, and it is the context of marriage. It is the only place the fire should burn. He tells him at least, that, at least that at least six times in this passage. Think about the way in which over and over he talks to them in chapter 5 about drinking water from your own cistern, your own well, your springs, yourself alone, not uh, your fountain be blessed. And the wife of your youth, let her breast fill you and satisfy you. Be intoxicated with her love. And so there's this contrast between this foreign and forbidden woman. And I told you this last week. The reason she's a foreign woman is because she does not belong to you. Could also be a foreign man. Does not belong to you. But in the middle of chapter 5, the context is, is marriage. And 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear. In the context of marriage, your body does not belong to you. Your body belongs to your spouse. That's 1 Corinthians 7. That's the only thing that belongs to you. Nobody else's body belongs to you. And so can I just say, young ladies, if you're not married, your body doesn't belong to him. It does not belong to him. He has no right to that whatsoever. Men, her body does not belong to you. It's not yours. And someday in the context of marriage, it will be yours and you can enjoy each other. But there is no place in scripture in which there is any context for sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Go back to just verses 20 through 23 and think about even just as we're thinking about Matthew 5 and how it is not just the act of adultery physically, but it is the, it is the mental act of adultery. And you just realize that, that pornography is, is, is just as applicable here in this context. Because listen, that doesn't belong to you. That's somebody's daughter, somebody's son, somebody's child. God hates it. And it doesn't belong to you. But on the other side, the second part of this is not only is marriage the only context for this, but within marriage, within marriage, sex should be pursued and enjoyed. We, we are sheepish about this for some reason, but we shouldn't be because God created this. 
We could have procreated by touching toes. But God chose a different way. Hallelujah. Like this, was, this was God's idea. God created this, and he intended this to be something that matters to us. And he commands it and teaches it. Listen, drink water, rejoice, enjoy these things, it says over and over. Twice it tells us that you should be intoxicated with your spouse. Like again, any words could have been used here, but, but they're not. And, and following this is the book of Song of Solomon, which, which exists a little bit as a metaphor, but a lot of real practical instruction about sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. And we, we look at the, at the other side of this, where this woman of folly is using all of the senses to get to you, sight and smell and touch, all of those things. And in the same way in Proverbs 5, all of those things are used for sexual satisfaction in marriage. All of those things. And God has created those things and expected for there to be joy and passion and satisfaction in the context of marriage. And we don't give this as much attention as it probably should, but it really matters. And the absence of it in marriage, listen, is really dangerous. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says this, do not deprive each other, talking specifically about sex, do not deprive one another, maybe except for a season for the purpose of prayer, Listen, so that Satan will not tempt you. So Paul is making it very clear that there's, if this absence of sex in marriage, then that's a foothold for the enemy to come and to bring temptation. And so what that says is this, listen, this is spiritual warfare. I'm not joking. This is spiritual warfare. There's a battle for your soul. And God has created you for these desires and for these longings. These things are a part of God's design and they're created only in the context of marriage. And the absence of this, listen, is a way in which the enemy is going to destroy you. Now think about this. If marriage is a picture of the gospel and sexual intimacy a picture of oneness with the Lord, which it really is, this is why this won't be there in heaven because we will have that, that oneness. And if marriage exists to be, to be a picture of the gospel to everyone around you, doesn't it make sense that he would want to destroy your marriage because he hates the gospel? And he would want to drive a wedge in your sexual intimacy so that he might then bring unnecessary temptation and then destroy your marriage and bring a wedge between you and your spouse. And so he commands that we think about this. Let me tell you something else. It's not just spiritual warfare. It's, it's part of sanctification. This is really important. And the reason it's a part of sanctification because it's not just a physical act. It's an emotional act. It demands you have an emotional relationship. It demands that you engage one another personally. It demands that you have conversation. It demands that you deal with, with conflict. It is self-serving. It is self-sacrificing. And so really sexual intimacy pushes you towards sanctification. It listen, it demands time. It demands patience. It demands kindness. It demands you stay sexually pure. It could be in this generation the number one enemy to good sex in marriage is something outside of marriage like pornography. So God has said that, that this has really been created not only just for enjoyment, but for your sanctification. It demands that you engage more than in just the physical act, but you're loving one another and you're honoring one another and you're blessing one another and you're being kind to one another and you're dealing with conflict and having difficult conversations. Proverbs wants to make it very clear, though, that this should be enjoyed in the context of marriage. And so we hate sin, we wage war, we enjoy marriage, and the final one is this. Get this down, the final one is this. We treasure Christ. We treasure Christ. And I'm not just speaking Christianese. I am not just saying this because I need to say it. I do believe, having dived deep into this issue, and particularly in the last year, trying to understand this more in the, in the issue of temptation, that we do, I believe, have to begin with an absolute hatred for sin. When we get to that choice, I think one of the things we have to think is this is going to destroy my life and the life of everyone I love. But that's not enough. You have to be fighting for something more. And I believe what you're fighting for is Christ himself. Jeez, sin must terrify you and Christ must delight you. You must love him more. You must want him more. One of the struggles of preaching the book of Proverbs is there's so much repetition. It just kind of says the same thing over and over and over again, particularly in the first nine chapters. 
And I would imagine that teenagers and parenting is not much different now than it was three to 4,000 years ago. And you have to believe the son, every time the father started talking and he said, this son, listen to my instruction. The son would say, dad, please. Big eye roll emoji, right? Like, please, dad. You said this yesterday. Dad, you said this two days ago. Dad, you always say the same thing. And he does always say the same thing. Almost every conversation starts in chapters one through nine with son, listen to me. Son, please respond to me and, and hear me. And look at these invitations he always gives. It's, it's there in, in chapter five. Look at the first few verses of chapter five. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Why? For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil because the enemy's trying to get you. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood. She's sharp as a two-edged sword. Verse seven, so now listen to me and, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Chapter six, verses 20 through 24. My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. Listen to this. Listen to what Christ and his word will do for you. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and the reproof of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman and the smooth tongue of the adulteress, to preserve you from the temptation of the enemy. But look here at this point, last of all, at chapter seven. Look what it says in the first five verses. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. Now listen to four and five. This is so important. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. It's a very difficult word there for sister because most translations say bride. And the word is most often used in the Hebrew for bride. And so there does to see some intimacy there. And I think this is the way we should see it. Say you are my bride. You are what I love because it says and call insight your intimate friend. The word intimate friend in the Hebrew is only used one other place in the entire Old Testament. And it's in reference to Ruth and her relationship with Boaz. It is romance and it is intimacy. So call wisdom your bride and your intimate friend. It will keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So listen, what it's saying here is what will keep you from the forbidden woman is falling in love with something that is better than that. And that is Christ. This is a call to love and to treasure Christ, to make Christ your greatest pursuit. It says, keep that as the apple of your eye, that which is most loved, and what's that which you desire the most. It's a direct call to see the beauty of Jesus and pursue intimacy with him. So the book of Proverbs, particularly verse chapters five through seven, kind of paint this extremely heavy picture of sin. And listen to me. I want you to feel the weight of sin. I want you to feel the destruction of sin that is important and right for you to feel. I want you to be afraid of sinning in that regard. So it paints this heavy picture. But then, as we're feeling the weight of sin, we hear the invitation of woman wisdom on the other corner saying, but you can come to me. You can follow me and I've got life and I've got restoration and I've got mercy and I've got grace and I can take the years that the locusts have eaten and I can restore you and I can make all things new and I can give you a pure heart and I can restore everything that you have lost. I can make this new. And so we have this invitation of Christ who is pleading with us, saying to us, listen, the greatest motivation for leaving sin is not just the damage and effects, but because Jesus is always better. And I think a previous generation tried to teach us not to sin, particularly in the matter of sexuality, by just telling us that we had to fight against sin. And that will get us a little ways, but it won't get us all the way because we have to fight for something, not just against something. We have to be saying, I'm not just going to not do that, but I want something better. And what we hold out here is all of the temptation of sin and, mo and sexual impurity. And out here, the glory and the joy and the life and the promises and the way of Christ. And he's better. And every time you make a choice about sin, you have an opportunity to choose Christ, that which is better and that which brings life, that which blesses, that which gives reward. You're choosing something better. Robert Murray Machane, the 19th century Scottish pastor, said it this way. Listen to this. We're almost done. Listen to this. He says, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And so we need to look at ourselves. We need to look at our hearts. 
We need to look at temptation. We need to look at the things that are happening in our lives. But for every one of those looks, take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. Because you will see the weight of your sin and then you need to see his mercy immediately. You need to see the destruction and then you need to see the restoration immediately. You need to see the years that the locust has eaten. You need to see absolute restoration through Jesus Christ. You look at yourself and you take 10 looks at Christ. He goes on to say, let your soul be filled with a heart ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Feast on Christ is what he's saying. Feast on Jesus. Feast on Jesus. Go after Jesus. Listen to Jesus. See that he is sweeter and he is better than anything the world has to offer. It is not just a fight against sin. It is a fight for delight in Christ. I want to end with one verse and we'll be done. I actually want to end the same way we did last week. Look at 5 verse 14. Chapter 5 verse 14 will be done. My heart has been deeply grieved and broken over this verse. It is the one verse in these three chapters that brings so much heaviness to my heart. And it's how we ended last week, but I want to end here again. I just wonder if there are those that feel this exact way. Here's what it says. I hated discipline. I didn't fight. I didn't wage war. I didn't listen. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Now I'm sitting in the congregation. I'm sitting in church. I'm in the midst of everyone, but I'm on the brink of utter ruin. I, I could destroy my life. I'm getting close. I could be doing things that will have consequences. And I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the symboled congregation. And what I want to say to you is the three things I said at the end of last week. First of all, if you feel that way, I want you to be humble. I want you to acknowledge that you need help. You do not have the strength. You do not have the power to fight this any longer. Be humble. Second of all, be honest. You have to bring this to light. You have to bring this into the conversation. You need people praying with you. You need people praying over you. You need people fighting with you. You have to bring this to light. And finally, be hopeful. There is more mercy in Christ than there is a sin in you. His mercy is more, his mercy is more, his mercy is more. Where sin increases, grace abounds. And so you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you see his death as sufficient payment for every sin you have ever committed. And you look at the long line of men and women in the Bible and there's only one hero and his name is Jesus Christ. Every single other person in the Bible is a total mess, just like you and me. If you ever see a book for Bible heroes, don't buy it because there's only one. Jesus is the Bible hero. Everyone else is a mess. And God uses them. God uses David and he uses Solomon. He uses depressed Elijah. And all of these people God uses. The Bible is a story of a long line of messed up people used by the grace of God because they get honest and they get humble and their hope is in Christ Jesus. And so it is for you. You're a mess and I'm a mess and God is sufficient and good. And so you look to Jesus Moment by moment, you look to Jesus, you run to Jesus, and no matter what it is you're dealing with, someone in scripture has also dealt with, and there is sufficient grace for you today. Be hopeful in Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. I felt so burdened this week trying to balance these two things, this, this weightiness of sin, which has to be there. You have to hate it. You can't tame the bear of sexual sin. It will devour you eventually. And I want you to feel the weight, but I, I don't want you to be crushed by it. I want it to cause you to run to Christ. And so we feel the weight, but then we feel the weight lifted as we come to Christ and we feel that there is hope and there is help. And there is a way out. If we believe the gospel, we have to believe there's a way out. That there is restoration, there is forgiveness. There is grace, there is kindness, there is mercy. We also have to believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to believe that it is possible for you to be a new creation. It is possible for your heart, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, listen to this, to be white as snow. That's the gospel. And so I just want to plead with you to come to Christ and to, not just for the first time, but just keep coming to Christ. Make him your intimate friend and see that he is better. So if we can pray with you or over you, we would love to do that in this time of ministry. 
If you want to come and pray with one of us, or if you just want to come and kneel here and pray, if you want to bring some with you and say, would you pray with me or over me? If you just want to come by yourself, there's something important as we go out on this day and the busyness of this day to just say, all right, Lord, I, I, need, I need to just get on my knees for a moment and just pray. And so don't let pride keep you from responding. Just let's just, we're a family, we're all broken. Sin is wreak havoc on all of our lives. So let's just be humble before the Lord this morning and take these last few minutes to respond. So Father, we give you these moments. We ask that you would be glorified in them. Lord, do that work that only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet as our invitation is given. Some of our pastors and prayer partners are here, men and women. We'd love to pray with you or over you. If we can help you in any way, we wanna do that. Let's respond to the Lord and let's sing about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, his sufficient mercy and grace. Let's make that our song this morning. There is a song, I know it well, a melody that's never failed on mountains high. In valleys low, my soul will rest my confidence in you alone. Oh, pass a name, his name is Jesus, my Savior's cross. I set this sin free. Oh, pass a name, his name. Oh, Christ, be praised, I have been told. There is a light, salvation's flame. Christ undefeated, trampled the grave. See now the
do hope, I, I thought about this so much this week and really prayed through it. I do hope you leave hopeful. Um, those things are hard to balance, aren't they? But the reality is both of those things are true, that there is a weight to sin, but there is such a lightness to Christ. And so I just pray that, that the application of this is that you would make some hard decisions and you would uh, do some specific things to wage war, but ultimately you would just feast on Christ and he would become so sweet to you that you would not want to do anything to interrupt your intimacy with him. That's the goal, that Christ would be better. A couple of things before you leave. Uh, first of all, we talked a little bit last week about uh, this, this ministry we have in Peru, and we've planted a church there. Uh, my daughter Lily and I were for the, with the first trip that went into these villages, and uh, there's now a church there. We're seeing people come to Christ, but there's more churches that need to be planted. And so there's a group that's going this summer. It's a great trip for anyone. It's a great first mission trip. It's a really great trip for families. And anybody that wants to go, there's a meeting right after this service right now in the tabernacle. If you want to go over and get some information about that, that's a great one. Uh, next week is Easter. We we have a ton of these cards right here and they're really not very good after next week. So if you would take these, there's a bunch on a table out there. I think they're all in these. Just please just take them all and just pass them out and invite people to church. There's tons of people that will go this week that won't any other week. So let's, let's invite and let's be praying about what God wants to do there. Let me just say a couple of practical words about that uh, as well. Uh, next week, as you come into the building, there's going to only be one way in on Easter Sunday with this many people uh, and three services. Highway 78 is going to be the only way in not you can't get in down Ruth Jackson that will be the only way out so everyone will be moving in the same direction coming in off 78 and leaving out of the three exits in Ruth Jackson just remember that uh, next week so uh, that can be a smooth process with three services and last thing is this I make a uh, I don't know I don't need to tell you this but I make a monthly video every week and I know you watch that so this is unnecessary but uh, the first Wednesday of the month which will be next week I make a little video and the reason I do that is because there are things I want to talk to you about that I can't talk to you about on Sunday just because we don't have time. And so uh, this week, I want to make special mention of this for you to watch it. Um, given the fact that we have grown about 47% in the last two years in attendance and gained over 500 new members, uh, we need to add some help. And so we're talking about transitioning some staff members into different positions, some really good, everything is good, everything is positive, and, uh, but we need to add somebody. And so I want you to hear the explanation for that. And so watch the video if you would, because we'll be talking about it in the next couple of weeks, but it's just important for you to get the context for that. Sounds good? God loves you. He's for you this week. And I love you and I love being your pastor. God bless you.